this level of excitement and support I have never seen before in the nuclear industry. If you'd asked me that question two years ago, I would have given you a sad answer. But I think where we are in terms of preserving the existing fleet and the rash of new technology that's coming online, it is really an exciting time to be a part of the nuclear industry. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about lobbying and why legislative engagement can determine the fate of the nuclear industry. This was my third year hosting a panel for the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, and I always want to introduce that audience to a world they haven't seen before. What could be further from STEM than politics? I was a registered lobbyist for a comically short time back in Austin. Texas meets every two years. I started work with the Cole Foundation in 07. By that time, the session that year had already wrapped. I was around for the 09 session, but by 2011, the foundation was kaput from the financial crisis, and I was already on an oil patch working for the fracking folks. As one of my panelists today says, lobbyist jobs aren't to know all the answers. Most of the time, they broker getting a subject matter expert in front of lawmakers, which is why I thought it'd be fun to share that tidbit with the audience of mostly nuclear engineers. States can make or break nuclear plants. One of the details I wanted to showcase were the number of plants in the past decade that were shut down almost entirely due to political and public pressure. But one of my panelists also shows how successful efforts at the state level can save these plants as well. Both of those slides are available on the webpage for this episode. I also wanted to draw a contrast with how states are addressing their energy needs differently. Two of my panelists are state lobbyists from Texas and North Carolina. And something else I shared on the webpage was how dramatically reliable nuclear power is to the state's energy portfolio. Based on the Energy Information Administration data, both Texas and North Carolina have nuclear fleets. In both cases, the share of power generated was more than double the share of generation capacity. This means that nuclear is running more of the time than other sources. As you can imagine, wind in Texas's case and solar in North Carolina's had smaller generation versus capacity shares. That's why it's critical that nuclear's clear benefits come from everyone, not just the folks paid to wear a suit. In many instances, testimony from experts was critical in swaying legislative opinion. I couldn't resist hearing one of the panelists describe prepping an expert for testimony reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the HBO series Veep. Something. What happens if I get called in before a congressional committee? Okay. You need three versions of your statement. Uh-huh. Like what I say happened, what they say happened, the truth, right? A written, an oral, and a shorter oral in case of a time limit. Right. <laughs> Granted, most folks in this scenario aren't facing jail time. They're simply laying out the case for nuclear. It's just another tool to keep our nuclear fleet safe, whether it's at the plants or state capitals.
My panelists are Lorena Campos from Texas, who represents NRG among her clients, Ryan Minto in North Carolina, who works in-house, as they say, for Duke Energy, and Connor Woodridge, head of public and legislative affairs for the Nuclear Energy Institute in Washington. Together, these panelists represent a deregulated state, a regulated state, and the national picture. You also have an internal lobbyist, a, quote, hired gun, and a trade association perspective. As much as I wanted to get into the policy protecting our nuclear fleet, we also got into some inside baseball, which was fun for me, like when to go it alone and when to lean on a trade association that represents you and your peers. I hope you enjoy my panel for NAYGN, protecting our nuclear fleet, one bill at a time. All right. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jay Dauenhauer, host of the Energy Cast podcast, now in its fifth year. This is also my third year hosting a panel for NAYGN Carolina. So I want to thank all the organizers for this opportunity. From the beginning, I thought of our different energy technologies not as one good, one bad, but how do you make the most of the technologies that you have? This can mean solving for intermittency with renewables, carbon with fossil, or forget nuclear, they're perfect, right? But I don't believe nuclear gets the credit it deserves. And while some folks can clamor for more carbon-free energy, you've also sometimes seen those same people neglect or outright oppose nuclear as a solution. We need all the nuclear we can get, and we need to keep all the nuclear that we have. But we've seen that many plants have closed either too early, and one of those reasons is public pressure. So let me show you a quick slide. I played a little Google Me Right. Before this panel, I wanted to see if that was true. And sure enough, in the last decade, nuclear plants that were closed are closed before the end of their useful lives. Many were closed due to public pressure. And I'd argue that this, combined with even the ones that closed due to economics, could have been saved with healthy public policy. So that is why I wanted to have this panel to focus on these efforts. And I wanted to show how the tactics can be different depending on where you are. So I just want to introduce our panel. We have Lorena Campos, Government Affairs Principal at Campos Consulting Group. We have Ryan Mento, State Government Affairs Director for Duke Energy. And we have Connor Woodridge, Public and Legislative Affairs Senior Manager for the Nuclear Energy Institute. So Lorena, you're up first. Austin, Texas. How's Austin, my old hometown? It's beautiful and wonderful. Fantastic. I'll hand the floor over to you. Great. Hi, everybody. Lorena Campos here. I have my own government affairs firm called Campos Consulting Group. And I'm just a general lobbyist. I started in politics working for trial lawyers and then moved on to working for a firm and did everything from transportation to energy to literally crop dusters of Texas and everything in between. <laughs> so it's a very wide range of different policy and uh, different processes in our legislature here in the state. I just do state lobbying, not federal, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I like to keep it nice and niched. <laughs> now with my own firm, I do a little bit of energy, big city, local city lobbying, and that's why I'm here today having clients in the energy space. That's basically me, the long, short version. 
All right. And then we have Ryan Minto, State Government Affairs Director for Duke Energy. Ryan, tell us a little bit about you and what you've been working on. Hey, Jay, I sure will. So thanks for the time. Thanks for having us on. I'm Ryan Minto. I'm Director of State Government Affairs for Duke Energy. I took an interesting route to the energy sector. I came from United Health Group. So I worked in the healthcare government affairs space before coming here. First as a multi-state lobbyist for United Health Group and then as their federal lobbyist. But like Lorena, I also enjoy being here in one of our laboratories of democracy. I'm here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and really enjoy being with Duke Energy. Like Lorena, served at different levels of government, a member of Congress and with the governor's office, and enjoyed time at both the state and federal level. But we've been doing some exciting work here in North Carolina. The energy space is not boring, as all of you know. So this year, we have worked on House Bill 951, which is the Energy Solutions for North Carolina Act, which was really historic bipartisan legislation here in North Carolina that set an energy path for our state, hitting 70% carbon reduction goals by 2030, net zero carbon reduction by 2050, and sets a framework for us to establish those goals, working with the North Carolina Utilities Commission and stakeholders across the state to achieve those goals. So we're really excited about that and happy to be with this group. It's no secret that our CEO, Lynn Good, has said that she sees no way that we can achieve these goals without nuclear energy. So really excited to talk to everyone this morning. All right. And then finally, we have Connor Woodridge, Public and Legislative Affairs Senior Manager for Nuclear Energy Institute. Hey, Connor. And you're in D.C., right? I am indeed, Jay. Yeah, I'm actually born and raised in D.C., so I'm one of the original Swamp Monsters. So I started off in oil and gas, a little bit of coal as well. So I'm relatively new to the nuclear energy space. However, it's a lot easier to sleep at night. Um, I, uh, I was a federal lobbyist. I was a local lobbyist. And now I'm a state lobbyist. So everyone from county executives, county engineers, up to the White House, I've interacted with. Primarily right now, it's just an exciting time to be part of the nuclear energy industry. I think the conversation around climate has really shifted over the last couple of years and it's become less of a partisan issue, more of an issue that both sides of the aisle wants to tackle and I'm very excited to be a part of it. And so you had mentioned some of the plants that had closed and I just want to share my screen really quickly because I am an optimist and I would like to share some of the plants that we've saved. It's about a dozen plants, several dozen reactors, and it represents about 20 gigawatts of total summertime capacity. And this is primarily done by zero emission credit programs, a broader range of policy. But as we go forward, I think there's a great story to tell about preserving our existing fleet. And if you want to meet those climate goals, then you got to keep these plants online. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Jay. You bet. And thank you so much, Connor, for that. I like that we had kind of a yin-yang of those two sides. All right, Lorena, we'll start with you. We've had a chance to talk a little bit before this. I was a registered lobbyist in Texas. Anyone who listens to the podcast has heard me tell a bazillion stories about being executive director of a clean coal carbon capture association about 10, 12 years ago. We did the pre-call. We name-checked a lot of people that we both knew. (laughs) But the question I wanted to get to you was, and really the reason I wanted to talk to you and get a Texas panelist primarily was so we could draw a distinction between the regulated markets like Duke Energy's territories and the deregulated markets like Texas. And I've heard about this before. Deregulation can be kind of tough on nuclear plants when it comes to wholesale energy costs because they're essentially negative during heavy renewable generation days, you know, those pretty spring days when all the wind in West Texas is blowing. So how is Texas ensuring that this doesn't drive that other zero carbon baseload energy like nuclear out of business? 
Thanks, Jay. I want to start by talking about what deregulation actually means in Texas, right? It really does have three different components. You have your generation, your TDU, which is your transmission and distribution, right? And your retail electric providers. All of those are in different areas of whether they're regulated or deregulated. Your retail electric providers is basically your consumer choosing their electricity provider in a deregulated market. However, Texas, 90% based on its 90% of the grid of ERCOT is deregulated. When deregulation began in 2002, you had your own utilities like the way Austin is. I don't have a option on who I can use as my retail provider, right? And I know we're here talking about the generation side, and that is more of the deregulated, whereas 85%, which is around 26 million people, have the power, pun intended, to pick their own electricity provider. I represent the biggest TDU, your distribution and transmission folks, the biggest in Texas based out of Dallas, and I represent NRG, who is your generation company, right? TDUs are a little bit more regulated as opposed to your generation companies. And I think that's when people say, oh, Texas is a deregulated market. Well, those three different components all have different, I guess, ideas or ways of how it's being regulated or deregulated, right? Talking about NRG being the largest percentage owner of electricity in Texas or in ERCOT, you think about the nuclear plants that they have. The nuclear plants that they use, they have their own plant, which is Comanche Peak, and they take their nuclear from South Texas project and they buy and sell their nuclear energy from there. Texas uses a little over 10% of nuclear energy in any given year. And I think it goes back to your question, how is Texas ensuring that zero carbon base load with the 10% of nuclear energy? That conversation is not happening. I mean, that's just a simple answer. It's just not. And it goes back to why is it not happening? It's because of the cost. You're trying to find investors to come into Texas, build a nuclear plant, and lose money because that's what's happened before. Yeah, very interesting. Ryan, on the regulated side, I wanted to talk a little bit about why you want to have nuclear. Duke Energy announced their net zero carbon pledge in 2019, and then Lorena mentioned NRG. I looked it up. They announced their pledge within that same week in 2019. So they were all announcing around the same time. Do the legislatures, at least in your experience, do the legislatures get that nuclear and the continued use of nuclear is pretty much the only path to that goal at this point? Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. And I think there's a diverse mixture of thought on that, at least within the North Carolina state legislature, there is. And really, to Lorena's point, it really does come down to cost, least cost and reliability and nuclear has a strong reputation there in that regard. So it's clear for us in North Carolina that we've been able to build on our clean energy transition because of the strong foundation that we have with carbon-free nuclear energy. You know, in the Carolinas, nuclear provides about 50% of the total electricity that we generate and it's baseload that runs 95% of the time throughout the entire year. But back to your specific question on legislators, you know, during the legislative process, 
this year, there was a great deal of discussion about the future of nuclear generation and the House process. The legislation there had support for subsequent relicensing of our existing nuclear facilities, as well as authority for cost recovery of early site permitting of future nuclear. And while those provisions didn't ultimately remain in the final compromise legislation, there was recognition of the possibility of new nuclear. Our 70% goal by 2030 has a little bit of an asterisk by the side of it. If our carbon reduction plan involves new nuclear, that 2030 goal has some flexibility on it. And I think a lot of that is due to the good work of Connor and his team and other folks in the nuclear industry that were in North Carolina and actively talking about the benefits of nuclear, talking about the future of advanced nuclear, of small modular reactors, of molten salt reactors, of different future technologies, and when those would be commercially viable. So there certainly was a strong recognition of the value of nuclear during that process here in North Carolina. Yeah. And I'd also add that North Carolina is one of the leaders in the country on solar as well. So pretty diverse all around. And then Connor, you get to see this from more of a national level. That's really what I wanted to talk to you about. So I can have two state level folks working with utilities and and then the national guy. How organized is NEI's membership on addressing issues threatening the future of the nuclear fleet? And what I really was interested in is kind of like whenever a storm hits one side of the country, right? Do you see members from other parts of the country coming to states and region where there could be issues? How are you able to mobilize your membership across the country when needed? So first of all, I think we are extremely organized. And Ryan mentioned in North Carolina, to answer your last question, and just reflecting on the diversity of our membership, we were able to plug in a professor of nuclear engineering to testify at the HB 951 hearing. We were able to plug in multiple members who represent advanced reactor technology companies. We're really on the forefront of nuclear engineering right now. And one of the anecdotes that has always stuck with me and something that I've repeated a lot, and forgive me if you've already heard me tell this story, a Democratic legislator later, I won't name names, in North Carolina, went into a briefing with NEI on advanced reactors, skeptical, a little weary of perhaps the safety, perhaps the waste implications, and came out of that meeting asking for an SMR in his district. And so I think that speaks to the efficacy of the experts, the testimony that we provide. And it also allows our members a degree of, I think, legitimacy that only folks from academia, dozens of our members are universities and represent test reactors. And so that ability to plug those in whenever the need arises is super important. But yeah, I think every state is on a different leg of their nuclear journey. There's still 13 states that have nuclear moratoriums harking back to the late 70s. And then there are states that are incentivizing small modular reactors, that are incentivizing the existing fleet. So it varies. Every state is different. Jay, I just want to follow up there as well and want to say thank you to Connor and Christine again and their team. But I would say to the point about organization, NEI is also able to mobilize a grassroots network in some ways, right? And so we owe a big thanks to the folks that are on this call as well, that are members of organization like this and others that are willing to reach out to their state legislators and other policymakers and help with that education component that Connor spoke about previously, that they're willing to have their voices heard. And that was really effective here in North Carolina for members who are sometimes 
mile wide and an inch deep on policy issues to be able to learn a little bit more and to be able to hear directly from their constituents on these issues. So again, really thankful for the support of having an organization like NEI that can help in that regard. Yeah, and NAYGN, I think one of the best parts of it is just the enthusiasm, the pure enthusiasm for nuclear energy. And there's a direct tie between these legislators receiving notes of support or notes of encouragement from the constituents and then the questions that they ask in hearings. And it really, folks can make a difference, really. And that passion is very evident. Yeah, and I'm going to get to what the attendees here can get into. Let's start off kind of broad here. What is the national temperature on nuclear power from a legislative standpoint? And that can be one-on-ones with the individual legislators, maybe incentives, giving money. It's free for all. I'm happy to kick this off. NEI represents dozens and dozens of members. Our biggest ones are utilities. We represent 93 reactors across 28 states. I started in the oil and gas industry at the very beginning of the fracking boom, and that level of excitement is what I'm feeling right now. The national temperature is very favorable. At the federal level, we have the bipartisan infrastructure deal, which gives an enormous amount of money to the DOE's nuclear programs. The reconciliation, which is unfortunately not bipartisan, establishes what is known as the PTC, the production tax credit, which is seven cents per kilowatt hour for nuclear energy. This level of excitement and support, I have never seen before in the nuclear industry. If you'd asked me that question two years ago, I would have given you a sad answer. But I think where we are in terms of preserving the existing fleet and just the rash of new technology that's coming online, it is really an exciting time to be a part of the nuclear industry. Geez, I feel like I'm like the Debbie Downer of the group. (laughs) I mean, hearing all of you guys talk about like the excitement for nuclear, like that's not the conversation in Texas at all. There's obviously conversation about it underneath blankets in a cave somewhere, but there's no real initiative for it. I'll go back to what I said, the biggest conversation is cost, how much it's gonna cost. And then you get the other side of the aisle saying, okay, sure, if we can figure out the cost to make this work, what are we doing with all the waste? And why don't we have that conversation first? It comes down to cost and the waste. And when you start talking about nuclear, it really is, okay, but let's have that waste conversation first before we even bring up the cost. And then you bring up the cost or you bring up the waste first. And then it's like, well, let's talk about the cost. And so it's just kind of like this volleyball back and forth. We haven't seen any real initiative or temperature here in Texas to talk about nuclear. They want to use all of our resources, our money, our subsidies, to expand the fleets that we have now and not try to create more when there's so many other not so optimistic things that go with it. (laughs) Yeah, let let me temper my enthusiasm, my optimism, cost and waste, those are ever present um, for, for our members. When you have stories like Vogel, which are massively over budget and off schedule, it poisons the narrative, it really does. I will say in defense of Vogel, I think that there was some very legal things, which unfortunately derailed the project. I think as we look forward, as we pivot to the future, to the horizon, what we're really looking at is these SMRs, which are not have to be manufactured in situ. There's efficiencies of scale. So hopefully that, and again, I'm an eternal optimist. I think that these SMRs being so much smaller and the manufacturing processes are much easier and much less complicated. I think that that will bring down costs, but the whole world is looking at Idaho, is looking at Wyoming, is looking at 
these new projects to see can they be built on time and on budget. Yeah, and I think in North Carolina, those conversations were clear and that really played into the structure of the final compromise of the legislation that passed here, which required new generation to be both least cost and reliable. There was a recognition of cost, but there was also a recognition that we need baseload generation. And I think that's a good mix. And of course, they left it generation agnostic. They left it up to the experts to determine when they would bring those on and to allow technology to advance and costs to come down. But, you know, there was excitement among especially a certain group of legislators that were asking questions about different reactors. We have GE Hitachi here in North Carolina in the Wilmington area. They heard from folks with TerraPower, I believe, with Natrium. They heard from different SMR companies. They also heard from fusion companies. There was a lot of different discussion. You know, when you have a big piece of legislation like this, a lot of folks jump in, but they were good. They were robust conversations. And I think the final outcome, having that structure of both least cost and reliable and allowing the technologies to compete, I think will serve us well here in North Carolina. Yeah, got a bunch of great questions coming. A couple questions here about what role the government should play in absorbing risk. We hear this a lot, especially with the SMRs, DOE, and these groups are coming in to help offset the risk that would normally be needed in a capital market. And then I've got another question here about, do you believe that free markets should determine the best energy source rather than have the government picking winners and losers? And I think, Lorena, that kind of goes to the point we were making about the wholesale market that's deregulated. I mean, that kind of is a self-selecting group there. So any thought about where the government should stick it, <laughs> should stick its nose in and help maybe offset risk? And should they be picking winners and losers? Well, that was a conversation this last session. I mean, obviously, everybody heard about a storm here in Texas and what happened for a whole week of us having just unprecedented cold. I think we went to two degrees and it's Texas, seriously. And if that ever happens, it happens for you know, overnight, if we get lucky, we get snow, but by the next day, the sun's out and it's 65 degrees and it melts. We were at single digit temperatures for an entire week and nothing was melting. That conversation, I mean, immediately after the storm, we're spending 15 to 18 hours a day at the Capitol in committee hearings talking about that exact same thing. Where's the line of that free market, right? Saying, okay, you're in charge of making me have our lights and our heat on and what is the government's role in picking the winners or losers or picking who decides how we keep our lights on. And so I think that's a fair question. And I think that's still a conversation that we're having here in Texas. And there were two very big bills this last session that were finding different alternatives for that to happen, not necessarily nuclear energy or power, but having kind of like a backup, backup, backup generator for Texas. But then it was a conversation after that talking about whether having the government having a backup generator for the free market. That goes back to my initial conversation about cost and having investors come in and spend the money on our generating plants, our nuclear plants. Do you spend money? Try to fix a plant if we know that the government has a backup anyway. That was a big conversation for months and it's still happening. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little inside baseball. I was, again, head of a coal association. Many members were big utilities. NRG was one, AEP, Luminant, TXU, all those guys. And I found that one of the biggest lessons is when to get out in front and when to stay quiet when this being an industry association, when your opponents 
are making a lot of noise. I mean, they're always in front of reporters, always in front of the microphones. So as government affairs pros representing bigger industry, what's your rule as to when to go public and when to stay quiet? <laughs> Does that make sense? No one wants to go first here, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone wants to stay quiet. Everyone wants to stay quiet. Everyone wants to stay quiet. Everybody's really good here at their jobs and their chosen profession. But look, the truth is that our roles are pretty simple. We're here to help educate folks who are making very complex policy decisions. And we take those roles seriously. These are important, critical decisions for our states, for our countries. Whether or not you're out in front of somebody, behind somebody, I'm not sure that I think about things in those terms as much as I do just being responsive to policymakers who are really engaged on these issues. Yeah, I think as a government affairs professional, you're just doing nothing but keeping your ear to the ground, right? And so you're just constantly hearing how far things are going and, or like I said, when to not say anything because the second you start talking, now it becomes an issue. And so it's easier just to not say anything until it becomes an issue. And then that's when you start talking, <laughs> right? Nobody wants to go first. You kind of keep quiet until it's not just up to you, but up to your client and the associations you work for or that your client works for or being internal who your company really works with. And that's a big part of association work where they kind of get in front of everything before you have to. And whether it's your client or you as their lobbyist or their relationship person. So speaking just for nuclear, I think it's important to be assertive when folks are discussing clean energy or renewable energy standards, just to be sure that the carbon-free value of nuclear is recognized and understood in those conversations. But yeah, I think what I am at least is I connect legislators with experts. And if I can't speak truthfully and honestly, then I ruin those relationships. And so being assertive, but also being rational and being based in reality is, is equally important. I always tell people I am not the expert, but I work for the expert. And so you kind of stay in your lane where it's you talk to the legislator or you're the middle person, you're the messenger, right? And the second they want to have those honest conversations and you don't want to speak for your client besides the what I call the elevator speech, right? Just to get what you're advocating across. But I say, I'm not the expert, but I work with the expert. Let me get them to you. <laughs> Yeah, you can never go wrong that way. And I think one of the other things I remember lobbies for AEP, I remember him telling those guys like, look, I will never lie to you. <laughs> I'll never purposely mislead you, right? Even if something's inaccurate, I'll definitely make good on that. One of the experiences I had was when I shifted from coal to the fracking sector and I was working with a group that was recycling water and went to a few legislators that we know, Lorena, and one of them did slap me back and go, hey, what association is behind this? Because look, I'm not just going to help you with one company, right? They want to see right. groups where, like NEI. Where is the industry on this? Not where is your company on this, but where is the industry on this? And that's where, like I said, the associations, or like you mentioned, the associations start really making a big forefront to whatever your company or whatever your policy that you're trying to push for either your company or for your client, right? For us, I do have different energy clients and 
those different tiers of what our market is set up like. We have an association that has all the electric companies in there, whether it's TDUs, generators, the retail providers, they're always in the forefront. And so it goes back to your other question on when do you say something and when you shut up? It's where's the association? Are we all on the same page? Let them take the bullet before we come in. <laughs> you know, so to speak, right? But yeah, the associations are a really big part because you are going to these legislators and they don't want to know where NRG's on it or where it starts feeling a little vendory, right? It's where is the industry on this? Who am I going to hear from? Who are your, not only who's against this, but who's with you? And then that's a totally different conversation. And so when you work with the associations, it just, it's a total game changer. Yeah. I want to ask about committees and your relationship working with the legislatures. And I want for the audience to understand. So Ryan is representing Duke and Lorena is representing her companies and Connor's in a little bit different boat. He's representing the industry. Connor, you may actually testify before committees. Ryan and Lorena, you would never. Your job is really to educate the legislators one-on-one on background. Usually when there is a need for someone representing you to talk before a committee, usually you'll get an expert, right? Ryan, it's going to be the subject matter expert, right? So kind of explain how that works for these people, because everyone here is kind of an engineer. You're introducing them to a world that they may not be familiar with. Yeah, that's right, Jay. And some of these folks may need to enter that world at some point as experts who testify before committees. Of course, we would help them get prepped up, understand how to present before a committee, how to address members of the committee, how to respond to certain questions in some instances. But you're right. We've had folks like our vice president of regulatory affairs testify. We've had our senior vice president of transmission and fuel strategy testify a couple of times this year. And these folks bring a level of expertise and genuineness that legislators appreciate. They appreciate that they're living these things on a day-to-day basis, and so they're bringing them answers really quickly to the questions that they have. It's important for us to be able to lean on the folks that we have internally to do that and testify in committee. Yeah, so our expert witnesses, it's very similar to what Ryan just described. They are folks who have been in the industry for decades who could, given the right resources, could build a reactor in their garage. These are folks who truly understand what they're talking about. And I think the tendency, and this is just human tendency, is to see a company testifying and thinking it's pure self-interest. So what NEI provides is, yes, this is the industry perspective. This is what we've all decided is right for the industry. And then finally, first of all, I wanted to have you guys explain what your jobs are, uh, which everyone's done such an amazing job on. I now want you to let the attendees know what's their call to action. You know, how can they be useful? And you're talking about the smartest of the smart folks, especially pretty much in any energy industry when it comes to nuclear, that's for sure. So I would be remiss if I did not mention an advocacy organization called Nuclear Matters, which stretches from Alaska to Florida, Maine to California. They're nuclear energy experts across the entire world. The professor who testified on behalf of HB 951 is a member of the Nuclear Matters organization. They are tremendous advocates at every level of government supporting smart nuclear policy. If you're not already a member, I would definitely encourage you to do it. It's free. It's really a wonderful organization. There's so much passion and enthusiasm in our industry. It gives it a very positive channel and it makes that enthusiasm more effective. 
I think I would just say civil engagement, right? And being part of those type of associations. You don't have to know how the legislature works. You don't have to know the processes. But even if you're just engaged with the association, every association is going to have a legislative agenda for this session or for this year. Reading what that association is saying, how you can be involved. There's always what we call here in Texas, and I'm sure it's everywhere, but capital days. They all go to the Capitol and they go and get in front of legislators, whether it's a legislator who is authoring bills that are for nuclear or going to legislators who are not for it and really just kind of sitting in their office and talking to them and giving them maybe not a full rundown because it's going to go right over their head, I'm sure. But just try to explain what exactly nuclear is and how you're wanting to make that something that you're advocating for. And so it really is just civil engagement and getting out there and getting to these legislators and really just having that conversation with them. Yeah, Jay, I'd agree with Connor on nuclear matters. At Duke Energy, we also try to find ways to help our own employees and retirees communicate with elected officials. We have a tool called Generating Progress, which you don't actually have to be a Duke employee or retiree to participate in. Anyone who wants to go to www.generatingprogress.com, quick pitch there, can do so and sign up for updates on policy items that are happening in our, our territories across the country. Get updates and get alerts on when to activate and communicate with elected officials. But the other thing I'll say is elected officials are human just like the rest of us, right? So while Connor and Lorena and I are sitting in the galleries of these state legislatures, we see these folks scrolling on Facebook and Instagram and stuff, right? And Twitter while they're sitting on the floors of their respective chambers. So, you know, find your member, find your elected official on Twitter and tweet at them or whatever you do, right? Go on Instagram and comment on a picture and tell them that you think that, hey, baseload generation is really <laughs> important. The real exciting stuff that people usually share on Instagram and Facebook. But seriously, you know, these folks are human just like the rest of us. So there's a lot of ways to reach out to elected officials these days. And so frequently these folks are hearing only the negative and to hear the positive, you took the right vote on this bill or something like that. It does mean a lot to them. It's because yeah. it's like Ryan said, they're human. Thank you is always good. Goes a long way. Yeah. And one of the things that I saw when I was in Austin was, you know, look, a couple of the lobbyists were former engineers. So anyone here who's listening, if you're thinking about maybe having a mid-career change, that is a possibility. And you talk a lot about being subject matter experts. A lot of these people, what made them so effective was they did have a lot of practical experience going into those meetings. So that's pretty much going to wrap it up. And panelists, I really do appreciate the crosstalk. Those are the panels that work best, the ones where it's not just question answer, question answer, but just a lot of back and forth with the panelists. And so it was a very lively conversation. This is one of my favorite panels I've ever done. So thank you so much. I'm going to hand it back over to you. Thank you once again for a great year. That was Lorena Campos, Ryan Mento, and Connor Woodrich, my guests for my legislative panel for the North American Young Generation in Nuclear's annual Carolina Conference. I want to thank all of my panelists for their time, as well as Tyler Andrews and the folks at NAYGN for giving us this platform. My first panel with them was two years ago on episode 65. That was my first live panel as a moderator, and as you can see, I've been busy with those duties ever since. You can find plenty of pictures and slides for this episode on energy cast 
hostsenergycast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Synergy and Twitter at Host Synergy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 127. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how lithium recycling is leading to a sustainable and local energy future. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.